I'm Liat. I'm Moshe. We're both therapists. And I'm a PhD candidate of clinical sexology. And I am almost a rabbi. And this is We're New at This. We're aiming to explore some of those topics that graduate school didn't quite cover, from ethical dilemmas to treatment modalities, for the new therapists, the not-so-new therapists, and for all those interested in the sometimes inaccessible world of mental health. Every week, we'll be taking crazy posts we see on the internet about mental health and trying to make sense of our reactions to them. And just a reminder, nothing on this show constitutes as therapeutic advice. We are somebody's therapists, but not yours. If you need help, contact a licensed mental health or medical professional. And in addition, any clients we mention are hypothetical amalgamations of previous clients, (laughs) not any one person in particular. So welcome back. Today, we have a very special guest, Ms. Shana Frankel. Shana, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I am a trauma therapist running my own private practice. And like I said, we specialize in all ranges of trauma. Shauna, Shauna is what we aspire to be one day, though probably not as <laughs> not as soon as she was able to accomplish the, <laughs> the dream of opening a group practice and being someone else's boss, but one day. So what are we talking about today, Moshe? Uh, so Liat, you sent me this incredible article about DBT, which is why we brought Shauna on, specifically as relates to trauma. Liat, you want to share with us a little bit about what was going on in this article? Yeah, so this is from an article titled Trauma Survivors Speak Out Against Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, otherwise known as DBT. Uh, It was written by Rebecca Donaldson. Shana, before we even get started, what's your reaction to that title? (laughs) I'm curious to hear more. I'm curious to hear more. I find that everyone has their own experiences, and so uh, some modalities are appropriate to certain people, and I think it's up to the clinician to make sure that they have the right modality for the right client. See, right there, I I just love your mind as a uh, therapist because there are so many practitioners who are like, this is the modality, this is the only modality, this is going to solve every client's problems in every way, which is obviously a mindset that none of us agree on. (laughs) That's a very, like... Um, specific training and style. I definitely remember in like my early years being interviewed with someone who had a practice that that was the position to which that nice. is not the way my brain operates. And that's not the way <laughs> which I do practice in my work. Okay. All right. Let's see this post. All right. So part of the article, I'm just going to pull some quotes out. Despite the majority of the individuals being sent to DBT having histories of severe childhood trauma, little about DBT is trauma-informed in scare quotes. Rather, clinicians are trained to label feelings like suicidality, restricting food, self-injury, crying, and feeling sad as problem behaviors and are taught to engage in irreverent responses to clients who exhibit them. Talking about trauma is often shunned, and any of the aforementioned behaviors are commonly viewed as attention-seeking. So maybe I'll stop there, and we'll we'll get your reaction to that. <laughs> Before we do, um, do you think maybe we should introduce DBT a little bit for those who uh, may not even know what the acronym stands for? Sure. So DBT is Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. It was originally designed by someone, by a clinician who actually had borderline personality disorder, was unable to find effective treatments and started noticing that there were three components in order to be able to treat uh, and effectively find a sense of wellness. And remember, wellness is fixated on our ability to function in our day in, day out, and then in a positive pro-social way with other people. So Typically, something considered unwell when it impacts your occupational, domestic, or in, or personal functioning. So that's just something to be mindful of. And so they use a couple of different ways in which to find and create regulation, and that's creating an understanding of uh, safety. Well, that's a different kind of training, uh, but uh, it's, it's an understanding. Sorry, this is where I tell you that I have lots of training. So I'm going to sift out the ones that are most relevant for you guys. I, I just have to. I just have to tell you. It sounds like you've explained this so many times that you almost are reading a lot of the script. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you, this is the first time I've done DBT exp- like expression aloud. Um, this is you're very fluent, like- so 
It's impressive. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So uh, for DBT, the goal behind it is to teach emotional regulation, um, what's considered dialectical thinking, which is managing different um, opposing experiences and finding somewhere in the middle because often uh, it's working on a tolerance or intolerance level and making sure we understand what's considered our window of tolerance. So it talks about our arousal, which is when you're um, – when you are, your body's cued to kind of react to a stressor. And so there's a hypoarousal state, which puts us into our fight or flight. There's our hypoarousal state, which kind of immobilizes us, or there's just kind of like our typical arousal state. So that's, that, that's one area in which it treats. It treats how to engage interpersonally with other people. It does manage the social emotional engagement with other, uh, with intrapersonally, which means yourself, and interpersonally with other people. And it learns how to find a regulation uh, with that comes with this concept of radical acceptance, which learns how to accept reality as it is and not trying to push something that doesn't exist into existence or vice versa. There's a lot of theory and discussion as to how that works. And again, that's what the dialectical is, is those opposing thoughts that find a middle ground. Um, and then it's learning how to engage interpersonally and really finding regulation techniques that allow people to uh, engage in the world effectively. That would be a short version of that. So it's so funny because earlier today, Moshe and I were, were chatting just to kind of get on the same page for tonight. And I said, maybe the problem is that I've never gotten a good explanation of what DBT is. And I think that might be true based on what I've just heard. <laughs> and like one of the other things that's part of DBT is then also technically it's like oriented to like, managing your own behaviors, understanding like interpersonal behaviors, understanding how to have a healthy lifestyle and like seeking a deeper meaning to life. Like that's the core tenets of DBT. So like that's where the training is going to go. And so typically, like you were saying, and you're going to have to repeat the quote because I'm not like I'm an auditory <laughs> and visual learner. And so you read it auditory. So I'm like, that's totally fair. And so I'm happy to readdress, but like, sorry. Can I just summarize what you shared with yeah. us, John, and make sure that we're all on the same page? Because that was like fast. I said, the summit brain was incredible. Was <laughs> I was like, once you start me, I'm literally like a record Could player, you? and like people just like know to hit a button, and like words just come out. Love it. Okay, awesome. So, I heard two basic categories, which I know are split into ultimately, I think what we call four areas of behavioral capabilities or capacities. Right. Focus on your own emotional regulation and mm -hmm. stress tolerance and the mm -hmm. second one being interpersonal effectiveness now maybe i just missed it did you uh, mention I did mindfulness? mindfulness i said i called it okay. radical acceptance so i, I would love to hear it. that's what they refer to it in the clinic uh, in, the, in the jargon and then they use that as like a lot of mindfulness-based mm. technique as a result so they call it radical acceptance which is learning how to be in reality which then helps you hyper focus and being able to focus on the present and here and now and that's part of the regulation technique is understanding what happens somatically in your body to increase your ability to understand what's going on so that we can regulate your emotions and your mind and uh your disputed thought the the thoughts that are warring with what you want versus what might be happening and so that's why they it's the emotional regulation techniques as well so right which mm -hmm. goes back into the dialectic of no you know being able to accept the way that you're experiencing right. reality at the moment but also on the other side striving for change where it's possible and where you're capable and holding both those realities mm -hmm. at the same time is obviously Absolutely. a skill that you got to learn I just want to clarify, I always understood radical acceptance to be somewhat distinct from mindfulness. Mindfulness is just a skill in general of being able to notice and, and kind of, let's just say, hold reality in the moment, whether you like it or not. Whereas radical acceptance, I always understood to be specifically for distressing circumstances um, and emotions. You know, it's a good question. It's a good thing you're asking. It's a, it's a little bit because the challenge is, is like mindfulness, the way that people use it nowadays, I don't actually think it means what people think it means. Like typically when people refer to mindfulness, they refer to the this specific way of finding inter, interperson, in, intrapersonal peace. And that's not always the case because sometimes mindfulness is like understanding just what's happening in your body and cueing into what's happening in your body. Right, without necessarily achieving a sense of peace, right? It's simply noticing and maybe still existing in the distress. 
Well, it's, it's, it's when that's the point of the radical acceptance, it's recognizing you may be sitting in distress and your body is distressed based on the thing you're experiencing and then finding a way to help regulate that. And that's why you have to go through like what I personally call like the three bodies theory where you have to regulate your mind, your emotions and your, uh, and your mind body. And so there's like the three different bodies. And when you regulate all three of them, it find it helps you find a way forward. Is that a DBT thing or that's a Shana thing? That's a Shana thing. Love it. <laughs> Guys, we're gonna we're gonna do another uh, episode on Shana theory. <laughs> That's a whole different kind of can of worms. I'm happy to go there, but a whole different can of worms. All right. So I think that gave us a pretty good understanding of DBT. Um, when I was doing research on DBT, both before this and for this, um, it is a whole world. There's so much behind it. I certainly encourage people to do their own research. I will also try to link uh, in our description to interesting. Uh, summaries and articles about DBT. In the meantime, assuming that we have enough of an understanding of what DBT is all about, let's start asking some questions. Liat, I know you're you're sitting on something, so go for it. Uh, well, do you want me to go bring it back to the post, or should I just yeah. jump into my bigger? Okay, cool. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is this um, statement: "Little about DBT is trauma informed." Clinicians are trained to label feelings like suicidality, restricting food, self-injury, crying, and feeling sad as problem behaviors and are taught to engage in irreverent responses to clients who exhibit them. Talking about trauma is often shunned and those behaviors are viewed as uh, attention-seeking. So what's your response? Here is an interesting thing. There is a lot of people when we deal with abnormal circumstances, there are normal reactions to those circumstances. It becomes abnormal once we continue to have those live on in our brain in spite of the circumstance no longer being in front of us, right? If someone is physically attacking you, it is a normal response to have the flight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. That is normal. Fawn is when you like kind of perseverate and you don't know which way to go and you kind of like almost shut down, but not. So anyways, that's for those who don't know that part of that theory. But anyway. So suffice to say that when you go through something trauma-based, typically you're going to have a response. It's only trauma when it's something that shatters your world completely, changes the way you relate to yourself, yourself in the world, the world with you, and everything in between. So that's just a helpful understanding of what trauma is. So inherently, DBT does have some basic models in which they do treat uh, trauma. And again, it's more focused on helping learn how to regulate or that radical acceptance piece that we just listed before to understand not that like it's your fault or not your fault, but learning how to manage and make sense of the symptoms that you have so that way you can function forward. So that would be a little bit more at and around, like it's a trauma-based thing. Now you're asking another question or this post is asking another question, which is what does it mean when you start pathologizing what would be either a normal or atypical reaction based on a certain set of circumstances. And that's why I led with and started with abnormal situations require typically normal responses. It would be very weird. Again, if you were attacked and you're like, oh, this is fun. That's not normal. Then we have to talk about some, some other behavioral issues. Um, the goal is to be able to understand and make sense of that which broke inside of us, right? And that's apparently the trauma work. And so the goal of radical acceptance under DBT helps make sense of what went awry. And so if it's done effectively, it should inherently be able to help support those who have gone through that treatment, but not everyone may experience that. Uh, something I kept seeing when I was looking on like the therapy abuse subreddit and reading a couple different articles by people who went through DBT um, mm -hmm. is them saying things like if they were triggered by whatever memory of let's say a sexual abuse or they had a death in the family and they tried to bring that to dbt group they were shut down and said we don't talk about that here Ooh, that's hard. so i mean so i guess this is kind of where my lack of understanding about the modality comes in is is that how it's supposed to be practiced is that a bad therapist who doesn't understand the modality or is that part of dbt and is there a reason it's part of it well dbt is not designed to 
process trauma. It's designed to help you function through the dysregulated symptom, right? If you're looking to process the trauma, you're going some, towards something called cognitive processing therapy that's designed to process through the very thing that shattered your world completely. And that's a very specific way of helping redesign your whole sense of functioning. Because again, if we go back to the original definition that I gave you around trauma, trauma shatters your world completely. So how do you rebuild that which is shattered? You have to pick up the pieces and put them back together, but you can't rebuild that which broke. It's never going to look the same. So you have to go through and sift through and some Sometimes that sifting is going to be really painful. Uh, sometimes you may get hurt along the way, but eventually when you rebuild something, it's going to look stronger and different and sometimes often more beautiful than the thing that happened before. But that presupposes you have someone who can guide you that way. So the question that you asked about, is DBT supposed to do that? DBT is not designed to process trauma. It's designed to help you manage so you can engage functionally in the world and there are components that will help you process some of it but it's not designed to do the deeper work that's a different modality that would be more effective in doing that Shana, i want to pick up on something you said you said it's meant to pick up the pieces why do you have to necessarily process the trauma process the past in order to pick up the pieces in theory dbt seems pretty well geared to be able to give you the skills to orient your life in the proper direction to correct what was seemingly broken in the past without even necessarily having to reach into the past. Well, DBT is designed to help you function in terms of day to day, but it doesn't actually manage the trauma symptoms. It can treat trauma in the sense of like you learn how to function and you learn how to understand not necessarily like that it's a trauma response and then how to engage given that you're having a trauma response, right? Like inherently, I think one of the biggest errors that people face is like, Love the, I love this phrase of don't trigger me. Now, be mindful of when you're talking to someone, but our triggers are something we internally manage. We need to understand. So if I'm having an internal trigger that really didn't, wasn't caused, if you just said a statement and all of a sudden I'm having a flood of emotion, that was not your fault that I got flooded. That was my thing that happened. So it's my job to regulate that. And that's what DBT does. But if you say something that's really not so nice, I can say, hey, do you mind re like recalibrating how you said that? Because how you frame that made me feel X, Y, or Z. And those are some more of those DBT skills that allow you to engage if like you're feeling flooded, how do I regulate the flooding? And then how do I engage interpersonally with other people? So this kind of brings up one of my questions that I was going to address later, but I'll address it now is, um, should DBT be done in like conjunction with a outside provider who's dealing with more the trauma stuff, the day-to-day -day stuff that they're not really working on in DBT? Because something that I keep coming across um, in the agencies that I've worked for is somebody gets slapped with a borderline uh, personality disorder diagnosis, never by me, always by the psychiatrist. Um, I'm not comfortable giving that diagnosis uh, for a session for sure. And then you're kind of like pressured to refer them out to a DBT program because that's the only thing that works for BPD and they're too high risk to be here. And I'm like, it's almost like they're saying to me because I do have clients that don't want to go to the DBT program. And I'm kind of getting this vibe from the agency that's like, well, this person needs more treatment. So we're going to take away the treatment that they're currently getting because they won't go to the higher level of care. So I guess it's kind of like a two part question. Like one, is it appropriate to keep them and to have them also engaging in DBT? Is this the type of thing that clients should be pressured to go into like that? Like, I know you don't work for a DBT program, so it's a little bit different, but maybe you can speak a little bit to that. I would say that in general, there are like DBT, right, is one of those things that wasn't popular and now is popular. EMDR wasn't popular mm -hmm. and now it's popular. Now ART, accelerated resolution therapy, wasn't popular, becoming popular. Now I'm getting referrals for ART that I haven't had. And like when I, oh, that's a fun story. I'll get there in a second. I promise I'll explain it. Uh, but that would be another example where all of a sudden something becomes a fad. Right. And then it's mm -hmm. the next best treatment or the common, common thing is CBT. And everyone's like, I need a CBT therapist. I'm like, do you know what you're really asking for? Right. So like, don't get me started on CBT. <laughs> <laughs> I totally hear that. And that's why I say like it's I think there's so much nuance in this field that like inherently for a borderline DBT is actually a very effective treatment. 
at its core, it really teaches them how to regulate that dysregulation that comes from their own diagnostics. And in general, personality disorders can be really difficult because it's ingrained inside the person. And so DBT does a really nice job addressing that. But that's a little bit of a different question than what you were asking, which is like, do we just throw them to like DBT and just do group therapy and this therapy and that therapy? The challenge is, is we can throw anyone to anything, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right treatment. I'm a really big believer you have to like understand the client, understand their needs, and then make sure you like tailor the treatment to a client. Now, some people would say that would be blasphemous. I know where that comes from. I understand that belief. It's not how I operate. And I can respect that. Like I respect like the hierarchical approach and I respect like this approach. This comes from my own training and this is where I feel very comfortable with my skills. If, if it were me, and again, I can't speak for the general populace of clinicians. I also not typically that I don't, my brain doesn't work like that. And that's okay. Um, as we can kind of see just by this conversation, um, that I truly believe if someone were going to get effective treatment and there's uh, someone who has borderline or there's someone who also typically borderline doesn't come from a non-traumatic background. In order to have borderline, it has to come from a trauma-based experience. Typically any kind of disorder, again, that assumes something is literally out of order, atypical to a situation that we understand, you got to learn how to regulate it. so That way you can function in the day-to-day world. And so it's understanding what that ultimately is. And so in order to treat that, my recommendation, if it were me, would be have a trauma-trained, not trauma-informed, trauma-trained clinician who's trained in DBT and in some of these other modalities like CPT, cognitive processing therapy, or potentially EMDR, or potentially ART. I'll explain that because I know most of you asked that, so I'm coming back to that. Um, And that would be the way to do it. Now, sometimes it is actually really effective to put someone into a higher level of care. The challenge is, is like, you have those cases where if you they weren't pushed into that higher level of care, it would actually be negligence on behalf of the clinician to not push them to that higher level of care. But then you have exceptions to the rule, which is why it's so important for a clinician or any referral agency to be mindful of the client that they're getting. That's why I'm like, it's not a one-for-one answer. Shana, to summarize what I think you were just saying, you feel that people shouldn't necessarily just be pushed into quote unquote higher level of care with DBT specialization. The ideal should be having a therapist that has special, has both experience treating someone from not just a trauma informed perspective, but really has a background in processing trauma using the, um, I was about to say cutthroat, cutting edge um, of <laughs> <laughs> trauma treatment and being able to his- assist them with the everyday skills and the skills that you would uh, be, what we call them again, enhanced be- behavioral cap- capabilities taught by uh, DBT, but not necessarily just push someone out to DBT, which I would imagine, Liat, is also what you would hope for. I would imagine that in the settings that you've been Absolutely. in, Liat, what ended up happening is your supervisor or whoever it might have been just said, oh, this person got borderline. Yeah, get them out. It's a liability. We got to get them to DBT and they can't be here anymore. And that's what we saw in some of the posts that we looked at. Yeah. I also think people are just have a hard time. Like, I mean, when it's outside the scope of practice, it's up to the clinician to say it's outside the scope of my practice. So I'll tell you. And I think not all clinicians like to own that. Yeah. So I think too, it kind of like complicates things when you work in the type of settings that we work in, um, which is more like community mental health settings where the clients don't have the resources necessarily to go to a person with a million specializations or to go to this program and that program. Like for them, a lot of the time, I hate to say where I'm working right now, it's either they work with one of us there or they're not doing anything. So to me, I'm like, I'd rather them come in and get some sort of treatment and some sort of eyes on them than just be like, sorry, you're inappropriate for this. Like you're on your own. Yeah. I I currently have a client actually who came in with a prior diagnosis of BPD as I've worked with her. I've been thinking, wow. Yeah. I think this is the first client I've ever worked with with them. Just like, yeah, she, she fits every single criteria I can think of. Um, I haven't <laughs> sat down with her at a certain point and said like, do you think we're going to go through the criteria that, that BPD thing that we've been talking about? We sat through them. She's like, yeah. Oh yeah. That's me. Oh yeah. That's me. <laughs> I, um, I, I spoke it out with my supervisor and I spoke this out with her several times. We're in the process of referring her out to specialized treatment because I really want her to get specialized treatment. She's suffering a lot. She's 
yeah, just say it like, I'll just say it like, she's suffering so a lot. You're, so you're honing, <laughs> you're honing in appropriately, which is like, I think one of the things that's really important in any kind of clinical practice is to do the psycho ed, because there's a lot of terms that are so thrown out that might or might not capture somebody. So like sometimes when people self-diagnose like this, I mean, another story, another time, happy to have, you know, address this at another time. But no, we share whole, all like, stories. It uh, makes the podcast more interesting. <laughs> well, no, it was more of like, it's a different whole topic of like people self-diagnosing as yeah. autism because they actually have something called social pragmatic disorder or something else that's happening overarchingly. And as a result, they're self-diagnosing because some of the diagnoses seem to overlap with how they are experiencing <laughs> something, but don't have the wherewithal to understand the like nuance of diagnostics. And there's a reason why the DSM is like really, really thick. It doesn't just have two diagnoses in it. <laughs> Like We've said, definitely like talked about that before with like TikTok, you know, everybody's yeah. got borderline, yeah. everybody's autistic. It's, it's very Everybody common. This client with BPD, the first time I met with her, she asked me several times, am I a narcissist? Am I a narcissist? Am I a narcissist? And again, it, it's like that psycho. <laughs> narcissists don't ask. If I know. Like, yeah. I, I, that was, that was my first response to her. I, I told her <laughs> and I had to do some psycho ad on narcissism. And being that uh -huh. I saw her chart before and I saw that said BPD, I'm like, what might be going on is this prior diagnosis that you may or may not have, but was definitely, someone definitely thought you had. So let's talk about that instead. Mm -hmm. And also people don't always go over diagnoses. I think like one of the challenging things is like some people like diagnose and then clients hide behind the diagnosis. It's like, just because you have a diagnosis doesn't mean that's what you hide behind. Uh, that's like the same way if someone has diabetes, they don't have to stop and say, I have diabetes. Oh, well, no, you treat the diabetes. Okay. The, the diagnosis is there to inform treatment. It's not there to stop. I can't hide behind my ADHD anymore. Nope. Oh, Sorry. Shoot. Shoot. I know. Struggle's real. All right. Yeah, I know you got <laughs> But it's also like worth noting that sometimes people get a wrong diagnosis and then they carry they that do. with them. And they do. Like I have a client right now who keeps bringing up she's autistic that she is diagnosed with schizophrenia. This girl mm -hmm. is not schizophrenic. She had no friends growing up and had an abusive household and was autistic. And she created imaginary friends. And she's told me before she knows they were imaginary. But so she was given a label of schizophrenic and she cannot let it go, which is hard to see. Well, there's a reason why when clients come to like my practice, I we don't take the previous diagnoses yeah. as like the yeah. diagnosis. We always reevaluate because it could be that was accurate. I, it could be it was not accurate. I've had a circumstance mm -hmm. before where someone was misdiagnosed. And when we gave them the right diagnosis, then the client was more inclined to continue and uh, achieve treatment Absolutely. and actually had success in treatment. And like prior to that was like, therapy is stupid. And I'm like, <laughs> I can understand why you think it's stupid. If you've made no progress, yeah, it'd be yeah. pretty stupid. Yeah. Um, the goal is to be able to grow and not everybody wants to take on that growth. But then there's also the flip side of like, sometimes clinician clients think that the clinician is going to create the change and you got to take the ownership in the change. So there's a lot pegged in here. Shana, I want to bring it back to the post. And yeah, I want to ask you specifically, I, we saw this in several posts online from these uh, therapy nightmare or ther therapy abuse subreddits and things of that nature. People <laughs> were talking a lot about how they felt their DBT therapists were intentionally irreverent and cavalier and almost sometimes felt belittling. Now, when I was doing research on DBT, I did see that there was some recommendation of sometimes being less than the firm, like less than the firming. I'm curious if in your experience with trainings or in practice, you feel that that is a value within DBT. And if so, how that interacts with clients suffering from traumatic pasts. <laughs> oh, that is a loaded, loaded question. Yes. Um, it's okay. There's a couple of things that are happening. So part of DBT is inherently is helping understand the dialectics behind it. So part of it is also sitting with the discomfort. So not always is the thing we're experiencing, the thing that um, feels good, right? If I'm like really upset about I'm having, because um, this happens a lot. So one of the features just for those who don't know, a, a piece to borderline has um, self-sabotage behaviors that are often considered reckless. Um, so that can be around like financial spending, sexual engagements, what have you. So in like the context of someone who might be like over-engaging sexually, if a uh, DBT clinician is calling them out on it and the client feels judged and that again, the sexual engagements could be compensating for a sexual trauma, 
DBT is not designed to treat the sexual trauma part. It's designed to treat like what behaviorally you're doing and to understand that just because you're doing something, that doesn't mean it's the right thing. Because I think one of the challenges in, I think the clinical world as a whole, DBT highlights it, is not always is what you're experiencing being seen through like clear lenses. Sometimes it's through colored shades and glasses. So DBT is designed to help take off those colored glasses so that we can that can be considered as cavalier. The challenge is when it's a complex trauma case, it's important to slow it down to make sure you treat the trauma component of it and to also manage the interpersonal behavioral component. And this is why I say, this is why I'm a really big believer in the trauma therapist and specialist because that nuance makes such a difference because if someone just makes a comment and they're like saying this as a way of like, this is the first time I've ever expressed this vulnerability and a DBT therapist, their, their training is designed to be like, well, you still need to modify that behavior. Then the person's going to take that really personally and be like, you just dismissed my whole lived experience. What was that about? And wow. then they might not be inclined to bring it up again. So that's why I'm like, it's nuanced. Right. So what I'm, what I'm, I want to summarize. What I'm hearing from you, Shana, is you feel that there is an attitude within DBT and, and the value within DBT of calling a spade a spade. But for people struggling with traumatic pasts and struggling with let's just say dramatic past people struggling with trauma right if this is the first time they're sharing it if they don't have the affirmation of i'm recognizing this as connected to this deep hurt and this deep sense of destruction that you've experienced even if it's not cavalier even if it's said in an incredibly gentle way it can still be experienced as unaffirming and that's not mm -hmm. something that DB, you feel dbt necessarily can accommodate inherently i don't think it's designed in the structure of the training other than the radical acceptance and the ability to like help modulate those like reactions um that's more what the training is about um if the goal is to like process or sit with or understand how that truly engages and again remember like part of dbt has like this radical acceptance part to like learning how to accept ourselves wholeheartedly so there is technically supposed to be that sensitivity included but as we know there's the technicality of of what a training says versus how people sure. implement it and so sure. some people may implement it basically differently all right yeah yes you and back so my question um i was reading about the 24-hour rule and withdrawal of warmth and as both a person and as a therapist <laughs> i just cannot wrap my head around like the logic behind that and there's got to be something i'm missing please explain it to me explain uh, what those rules yeah, what are, are those rules? and explain <laughs> you know i'm gonna sit here and tell you this thing that i'm gonna say i'm not quite sure what you're referencing um because oh, like if okay. if you're referencing like like so should i yeah. let me explain what i want to explain because um, i'm like i'm like there could be like different verbiage that's used so i want to make sure i'm addressing what you're so, actually asking what I was reading, and I don't know if this just applies to like DBT group settings, um, more of the like really by the book DBT uh, type programs, but um, there were was the concept of withdrawal of warmth, which was basically if a client engages in any of that quote unquote problematic behavior, such as self injury, um, the therapist is going to withdraw their warmth they're not going to be as kind and as accepting and as loving to the client um in order to not reinforce that behavior it's kind of like a negative reinforcement and the 24-hour rule was called, if somebody that would actually be called differential attention. oh okay that actually so be called differential attention that's what that is so I guess there's different terms for these things. Uh, I'm glad that's I explained. Why I like, that's why I was like I don't understand understanding what you're asking that's also okay. that would be and a positive reinforcement it would be a positive yes, reinforcement, yes, it but would like, be. ignoring <laughs> of a negative behavior, right? The ignoring of a negative behavior and then looking for a positive behavior. The challenge is if, if they withdraw the warmth, the point is then to make sure that they come back with the warmth um, with something that is considered positive. So if the therapist never follows up on the warmth, that's on the therapist to make sure they do that because if they're using this differential <laughs> attention, 
then it's important to make sure you have both aspects of it. Otherwise, then it's just considered dismissive. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining. So I guess uh, what that is boiling down to is a bad therapist and these not clients necessarily. Having... I mean, again, <laughs> not a bad therapist and someone who's not nuancing the 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 skills. Yes. So it's yes. someone that's heard say. a withdrawal. So, someone who needs more training. <laughs> someone who heard withdrawal more um, and thought, oh, if someone if someone is suicidal once, I can't be warm to them ever again. Right. And so like, I mean like this, but like also recognize how this would play into DB, to play into borderline as a whole, right? Ultimately borderline is this elevation or devaluation yeah. of other people. So if then they're experiencing that same thing, that can be really like really jarring. And so if again, this 24 hour thing, I'm not so certain I've heard of it before. So the, the 24 hour rule is basically if somebody does engage in suicidality or eating disorder behavior or any of that problematic, you know, quote unquote problematic behavior, they are not allowed to contact their therapist for 24 hours. And I know in a traditional like DBT program, there's kind of this idea where you can contact the therapist at any time. There's like a therapist on call, um, not to like do therapy. I see Moshe's giving a look, but yeah, it's like yeah, more, thinking, they call and they say like, hey, no, it's, it's like one therapist is on call every night. And the idea is that the clients can call and say, hey, I'm in distress, I'm experiencing X, Y, Z. And then the therapist says, this is the DBT skill. Right. That it's you like in vivo training. Once you have- the Which course, is cool. Right? I, you so know, that, that's yeah. Cool. yeah, yeah. But if you, the, the 24 hour rule is that if you engage in that behavior, from my understanding, you can't access that support for 24 hours, which is crazy to me. Just as, a, just as, a, just as an aside, just so people have a little bit more understanding of DBT, my understanding, and Shana, correct me if I'm wrong, is that groups are meant to teach you skills, more of an, an education piece, and then being able to call a therapist outside of session time or groups is for in vivo, in like kind of in the moment, utilizing those skills. Yeah, correct. So like, I think Moshe is kind of getting at something, which is like, one would hope that this uh, client is doing like both group DBT and individual DBT. So like, the group think might be like, here's what a behavior we're trying to manage. Um, and so the hope would then be that the client would go to their individual therapist to work on that. So that way they're able to come and build positive pro-social interactions inside the group because group practice is often very, very different than individual practice. And like the skills in terms of like what they're treating is similar, but it's often treated differently. And I think like one of the things at the core of all of this is like, and circling back to something else we had been discussing a moment before is the goal of DBT is to learn how to self-soothe. So it's not up to the clinician to soothe the client. It's up to the client to soothe the client. And the goal of the clinician is to teach self-soothing skills. And then the client needs to learn how to self-soothe. So that's part of the DBT mentality as well. Gonna... Moshe, do you, do you got a, a question? Yeah, I got a nasty question. <laughs> and, uh, I'll just keep going if you don't stop me. Defeat. <laughs> Defeat the premise of the question if you think, I don't have so much experience with BPD. And I know the stereotypes. I know diagnostic. I know I don't know all the diagnostic criteria offhand, but <laughs> I have some familiarity with the diagnostic criteria. I know that, um, at least classically, we oftentimes think of individuals with bipolar disorder as being at least capable of villainizing people very easily. Or bipolar? I'm you're, sorry. You're talking about BPD. Like yes. bipolar or borderline? borderline sorry. I think of That's okay. I was like, bipolar is yeah, a whole yeah, different yeah. thing. It's Monday. It's Monday. I think, I think B and I, my mind goes to bipolar. I have a lot more bipolar clients than I have borderline. <laughs> um, I think we classically think of people with borderline as having the tendency or at least the capacity to villainize. Do you think a lot of the negative reactions we're seeing to DBT online might be attributed to that? So well, one of the characteristics to, DB, to someone who has borderline personality, like I mentioned before, has this elevation or devaluation of people. Can you explain that a little more for those that uh, are not so, familiar with the terminology? Sure. So elevation means you basically pedestal somebody mm -hmm. like they can do no wrong. They are God's gift to man in whatever way you want to do that. Uh, when they devalue someone, they are the scum of the earth and how dare they. And so a characteristic of borderline is to elevate uh, is to like pedestal someone or devalue saying they're the scum of the earth. So it would not like if the client has really strong borderline um, symptoms and has not treated them, that would not be atypical to have that be a response. 
but it also gets interesting because sometimes they'll swing back around and then pedestal them again later. So that's a fun fact. Okay, so the answer is maybe. Maybe that's why we see so many negative. Uh, it could be. DBT I'm saying it could online. be. A con- <laughs> right, it could be a contributing factor. I won't say for sure because no, there's I so much that, that we don't I knew the know. Answer was be, uh, and so that's maybe. why. That's why I'm not going to give you like a yes or no, because there's so much we don't know. Like it could very well have been a really unfortunate circumstance. Someone who has their borderline really managed well, and it really was nasty. And it could also be like a symptoms flaring. So like, it's a really like situational dependent. Which also not kind of brings me into one of, another one of my questions. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be a tendency, and I guess you're not going to really be aware of this because you have your own practice, at least for the last however many years. But um, I've personally, Moshe hasn't experienced this. There seems to be this idea among providers um, that I've worked with that like, everyone should know how to do CBT and DBT and they can just tell you to do CBT or DBT with your clients. I know we're only talking about DBT right now, but like, um, DBT is so- third wave CBT. <laughs> sure. According to those that believe there is such a thing. Or, you know, like there are jobs hiring for a DBT therapist and they don't actually require you to have any type of training. You could just say like, Oh yeah, I'm familiar with DBT. Um, so I'm wondering if you've experienced that and how much training you think a clinician actually needs to do or to have in order to practice um, DBT principles. And I guess part of that question is how much do you think this is attributing to the bad view of DBT, that there are people untrained who are claiming to practice DBT? I mean, I think that's up to an agency to make sure that, like, when they're hiring someone, the person's credentials line up with what they're actually doing. <laughs> I can say that, like, you know, I think that's a really important thing to own. I think in my own um, clinical development as a clinical supervisor, one of the things that I've uh, re re branding, if you will, is also how I do supervision. And part of that like supervision exploration is actually being able to provide real-time feedback the way that some colleges do to my clinicians so I can support them. Not because I doubt their skills, but because there's something that can be really learned real-time that I think gets lost in translation. Uh, so one of the things like I've modified is like part of the reason why I'm remodifying the way I do supervision is because I think that, again, Like, I wouldn't hire clinicians I didn't like and I didn't trust. I love my clinicians. I think they're very, very good. I think they're very talented. They have good gut instincts. They have good clinical instinct. And I'm really a big fan of them. Uh, The reason why I'm shifting the way I do supervision, in addition to the traditional one-on-one weekly uh, touch base about cases, to also do real-time feedback is to catch that very thing of there are skills that people learn, but when you're when you're real time on the job, that's very different than when you conceptually get information. And even when you like practice it with another clinician, it's not the same thing as when you do it real time. And I think there's something to be said about real time feedback. And there's a very traditional supervision model and we're not a very traditional agency. And I'm a big believer in being in the cutting edge of how we create and enhance and promote change and growth. I love this. This just turned into the best advertisement for your agency ever. Not my intention, just how but, I But are you, are you taking on supervisees, though? That's I do take on supervisees. Oh, it just turned mm-hmm. into advertisement mm-hmm. for supervision. <laughs> <laughs> you deserve it. You deserve it. Hey, yeah. I don't even remember um, what the original question was, Liat. Neither do I. I'm, I'm going back to our, our script. What are we talking about now? Do you want to bring up, um, do you like bring up the, the topic of sexism and bipolar? Or borderline I shoot? would love I would love to do that. You mean that women are more more diagnosed with borderline yes. than guys are? And that it's a yeah, so, female diagnosis, like same way histrionic is? I, I don't even... I, she knows it all. Yeah, I can't yeah, yeah. even go there. Um, Shana, I'll, you asked the question the yourself. Post anyway, for fun. <laughs> Sorry, I'll take, take back my question. It's okay. So the the next post I want to draw attention to is from the Therapy Abuse subreddit, and the title is BPD slash Histrionic Personality Disorder equals a Hysteria Diagnosis. And the post reads, newsflash, if a therapist or psychiatrist tells you that you are borderline or have borderline traits, it is in fact a contemporary misogynistic hysteria diagnosis. It means they have absolutely no respect for you as an entity. 
They consider you less than themselves and in fact despise you. Get away from that clinician ASAP. I will not argue with anyone who disagrees. If you accept this diagnosis as coming from a just society that respects femme persons, that is your business. Um, And this is something I have heard a lot, how this diagnosis is very sexist. Um, As we know, it is traditionally um, women who get it, not at my clinic. Um, It's it's pretty mixed there, but... um, I also, in doing some research, there are like academic articles saying that it, that BPD pathologizes women. Um, there are certain traits like hypersexuality that only apply to women with the diagnosis and not to men. Men can't, um, men can't be hypersexual? I, I guess from what I was reading, from my understanding, it's oh. not considered a borderline trait in men. It's only considered a borderline trait in women. it's considered like acceptable in men and it's not considered acceptable in women. I think, like, Which is asking, sexist like, in itself. Right. So you're asking like a couple of different questions. You're asking like a societal-based question and then you're asking a diagnostic, a diagnostic-based yes. question. Those are two separate things. Can I throw out a theory? Go maybe, maybe As more, the man in the room. Maybe more women experience... Um, trauma in this country at least sexual trauma i wouldn't say that true i mean yes i mean the statistics are like for women it's like one in three um experience sexual trauma and for men it's more like uh, i don't know less than that 15 (laughs) percent maybe I, I, I can't tell you the statistics, so I can't say I can inform that. I can pull up my dissertation, but that would take us a while. <laughs> so since you have the background, I would totally like, you know, defer to your uh, judgment and your research. I don't have that information to be able to answer that question. What I can say is that you're asking that this person is probably asking and conflating two different things. There's a societal based experience and then there's like the diagnostic based experience. But inherently, you have to understand where diagnostics came from. Uh, and this is where it gets a little bit more complicated, right? Because like inherently, again, if we go back to my original explanation, a disorder is something that like negatively impacts your social, occupational, domestic functioning. Right? So that's inherently what this is. That's a little bit different than when we say when we pathologize borderline or histrionic. A histrionic, like I, like this is where it gets a lot of bit complicated. I would say more women are typically diagnosed with borderline or histrionic than men. I think it's underdiagnosed in men. I think there are men who meet the full criteria of these categories. And I don't think that people are used to catching it because it features slightly differently. Um, I think that's something to be said about that. I think that there is a tendency to pathologize and there's always been a tendency of pathologizing female reactions more than men's reactions. That is a very common situation. Um, like hysterical used to describe women who are just having like weeping uh, episodes, right? So like hysteria, hysterical, histrionic, like those come from so more embedded. I think, yeah. Part of it for me is that like we talked earlier about self-diagnosing and how a lot of um, women, especially today, like walk in and say like, oh, yeah, I'm borderline. And a lot of times the behavior when I ask them like, oh, you know, like, what do you mean by that? Why do you think that a lot of times the behavior they describe is behavior that makes sense in context of their lives? Um, but also I know that if they were to go to another practitioner, they'd probably just be like, okay, yes, borderline check, you know, diagnose. Well, so what um, you're looking at is something that's like the nuance of diagnostics. And I think that's something that's really important. Like when someone is doing diagnostics, it's not only like, it's not like you sit there, you have the diagnosis, it's a one and done and that's it. Like assessments apparently are assessing a, uh, we should probably probably. Uh. <laughs> Assessments at, a, at its core assesses where someone is at at that specific moment. That moment changes. Moments change. Like everything changes. And so if one were to have one static diagnosis, that doesn't account for like sometimes like what they first walked in with was situational based in itself. Right. Sometimes people are like sitting there trying to adjust to something and that's not actually the diagnostic. Right. That would inherently be an adjustment disorder. But the adjustment disorder was just surfaced based on something else that's kind of going deeper. And like one of the philosophies of my company and one of the philosophies that I have as a clinician is like we don't chase symptoms. We fix problems. So when people are mm-hmm. symptom chasing, you're going to find a lot of like self-diagnosed borderline or you're just going to find a lot of like I said it. This is it. I'm not 
that's the end of it. But that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for something deeper. You're looking for like what's underlying, what's really going on. Because nine times out of 10, the thing that's expressed in the beginning session is never the like only thing that's on the table. It's definitely a feature on the table, but it's up to a really skilled clinician to help like dig deeper to make sure they understand. So I love that you said that because I had a client who's diagnosed with borderline and she is one of the ones that I do like, you know, I agree with that diagnosis. And Mm -hmm. she once said that her goal was to get undiagnosed as borderline. And the team I was working with just laughed, like as if that's not a possible thing to do. And so I love, you know, you're giving a face right now. I love that you're saying that it's supposed to be a static thing that you're kind of reassessing as you go. Um, dynamic. Again, remember it's a disorder when it like you're stopped functioning. The challenge when it's a personality disorder. The same way that I was saying about triggers, right? Like I can have a trigger, you can have a trigger. It's not up to you to manage my triggers. It's not up to me to manage your triggers. It's up to me to be like a respectful human. It's up to you to be a respectful human. It's up to you to use like appropriate languages for me to use appropriate languages. It's not your job to regulate me or vice versa. So someone who experiences borderline, the same way as someone experiences like diabetes, I'm not equating the like, diagnosis at all. It's more of like people understand like a medical diagnosis because they can see it. But like when we come to mental health diagnoses, you only see like behaviors and and that's inherently what the symptoms are. And so it's understanding is the behavior I'm seeing actually the behavior that's being diagnosed. And so if someone has borderline, they inherently could manage their skills where it's not like impacting their daily functioning. So that person could inherently have a very well-managed case of borderline versus like someone who has like a stalker level of borderline where they go harass people because they didn't like how they reacted to someone. So they like follow them and because they like took it as a rejection and then that impacts everything else and makes it worse and vice versa. And like there are cases like that that exist and you just sit there and you're kind of, you're like internally, you might have your jaw drop because you're like, that's not what I expected oh, out of you. But that's disorder again, too? That happens. Well, Moshe, we might have to have deeper conversations. I gotta stop that. I I think both Leah and I are trying to figure out what trainings we want to pursue. There's so much out there. And part of the problem with there being so much out there is you can go for the $2,000 like Marshall Linham, like Linham, official DBT training, or you can go for like our course that you find off nefesh.com.org, whatever it is. Um, Or you know, you can get like an act, uh, you know, skills uh, course in an hour and a half. Or again, you can pay Stephen Hayes, uh, you know, $6,000 to get the full. And even just choosing like which of the modality do right. you want to either do a expensive or not expensive training in. Which is <laughs> why we like made this goal, podcast. Core, <laughs> right. The goal at its core is to be able to find the ones that like give the information over an effective manner. Right. So there's like certain places where I'll like I like run my clinicians through training through specific agencies because I really love those agencies. I think they do a great job at like breaking down the information, making sure it's like understandable, making sure it's like digestible, making sure that it's something they can use in practice. Okay, I got so, like, you gotta tell us what these agencies are. Um, I mean, like, I really like the deployment for uh, psychology. I think they have a really good deployment of psychology. Yeah, the Center for Deployment of Psychology. Um, They are a military based uh, training agency, (laughs) and they do a great job. And sometimes you just got to cut out everything and just go straight to the core of everything. Center of Deployment of Psychology. I'd also love to another time. I don't want to waste everybody's time, but I'd love to talk to you about different trauma resolution modalities and which one I should learn because there's yeah. so many of them. <laughs> um, uh, there are a lot. Like I said, start with CPT, cognitive processing therapy. It's a really good place. Like I'm a really big believer if you're going to do any kind of trauma work, that should be like in your back pocket. Okay. Girl, right. Let's, 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 get, let's get into this point in terms of specializing in trauma treatment. I, I have some familiarity with ACT, not a lot, but some. And I know the basic idea behind that, though um, I've also been reading more recently that despite um, a lot of the developers of lots of different modalities, including DBT and uh, ACT, which stands for Acceptance Commitment Therapy, seeming like they're saying that they found the solution to all problems, They, if you ask them directly, <laughs> they will say, oh, no, we didn't mean that's a solution to all problems. But if I take what I've read <laughs> at face value, People that practice ACT, the idea being, I think, very largely starting from a place of radical acceptance, they really feel that you will naturally, over the long run, 
be able to diminish your experience of internal distress. So if you're ruminating on certain thoughts, maybe even traumatic thoughts, if you stop responding to them in a disordered way, if you stop trying to fight them, right? Now, I, I don't know if you're, I, I, see, I see you shaking your head. Everyone who's listening, she's shaking her head violently. But let me just finish, let me just finish, right? I think the idea has been presented as I've understood it. And again, we're new at this, so maybe I just misunderstand if I do. I hope I did. Let me know, right? Is that by accepting it in the right way, with the right practice, with the right guidance, ultimately, over the long run, the symptomology and the in, innate sense of distress will diminish. I am hearing from you that you disagree with that perspective. I am actually saying something a little bit different. Okay, so, uh, so I'm not disagreeing with that perspective. I'm saying that that does not cover what really is happening on the inside. So inherently, at its core, and this is you're asking a very different question, right? Like if someone is just learning how to accept reality as is, and like it's just, you know, I'm frustrated, I gotta be. Like if we're talking about a student and they just can't accept that they gotta be, yeah, like eventually you have to understand like what does this be mean? Or does it mean that like I have to like push myself harder? Does it mean that this is exactly where I am in my state? Like what did this mean? What did this look like? What were some of the factors that were coming to that? So in that way, yeah, ACT is really important because I think it helps create an understanding of a situation at its core. But you said something a little bit different, which is why I was shaking my head no, which is like assuming it's a trauma-based response, uh, inherently trauma at its core, like if you're really going to think about how trauma works, it is basically your brain is in constantly this hyperarousal state that it can't turn off. I like to hearken it to like like to an outlet, the open-ended circuit that are just flaring everywhere. And the goal is to plug in the circuit. So if you're trying to accept that your circuits are all flaring, that's not actually going to help you get better. So that's why I was shaking my head no, because you were conflating two different things. Well, I, I, I'm actually, I'm going to argue back. I, I do think that my presentation of radical acceptance, at least in the perspective of ACT as I've read it, differs from what you're presenting right now. I think- Right, no, I'm in agreement. I think like if you're, that's why I was like differentiating because you you added trauma into it, which is why I shook my head okay. down. So if you took the trauma out of it, then I think you're, you're, what you said was- So let me clarify because mm -hmm. for instance, I know ACT is used for pain management sometimes for people suffering from yeah. chronic pain. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that you can do from it seemingly, yet the theory is insofar as people struggle with it mentally, cognitively, they actually make it worse for themselves. And the idea of act is kind of let go of that tension, let go of that feeling of war and the stress that you mm -hmm. cause yourself, the suffering, quote unquote, that you add on top of the pain inherently. Why would that not I be the case with trauma? So it's not the case because it's not that it's not the case. That's like an advanced step that you first have to understand what happened before you can accept it trauma and you don't always understand what happened and so you have to make sense of the thing that we went through before you can then resolve and it. why do you so have inherently to? Act is, why do you have to what why do you have to you don't you can just keep having your trauma symptoms that's the problem that you want to okay have. so you're just no so basically you're saying from your experience treating trauma it doesn't work unless you really have an understanding that element of processing the trauma different yep, from chronic like, brain different from ocd symptoms different from any mm -hmm. other well symptom. no it's not like different from it's just like you will have some resolution for the things that you do understand because inherently act acceptance commitment therapy means you have to accept the very thing that you're struggling with mm -hmm. but if you don't know the some of the deeper core etiologies of the very thing about which you're struggling then you can't resolve it so that's why i said like that doesn't that only comes with whatever's at the surface right. pain inherently is your body's way of expressing your body's way of expressing to the brain that something is off uh, ART is an example of something that can help remove the pain because your brain gets the memo, you've processed the pain, you're done, you're good, and then it decreases the pain dramatically. So it can be used as pain management. There's lots of different ways to do pain management. Inherently, it's learning how to say, I'm not going to resist the very thing about which I'm facing. I'm learning how to face the thing and recognize I don't have to fight it, right? right. That's at the core of the act. And that is a very, like, I use that in my daily practice with my clients, but that presupposes they've had building blocks because if they were just going to accept reality as is, right? If they had a death in the family and it was unexpected death and you say, just accept it, that's going to end poorly. <laughs> 
Like, I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone who would take that well. Um, but it, once they've done the processing and then they've learned to accept that that's their new reality, that's very different. That's why I said act at the right time is appropriate. Same way DBT at the right mm -hmm. time is appropriate. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say when you have a skilled clinician who has a lot of these different tools in their toolkit, that's the difference between working towards wellness and getting actually well. Uh -huh. Leah, anything to add to that before I follow up? It, it just brings me back to our um, forever question of how are you a therapist when you don't have any of these modalities? <laughs> like so many people, so many people leave grad school without having any of these modalities under their belt. Like they're kind of just <clears throat> doing generic <laughs> talk therapy. Yeah. I mean, that's why we started this is to learn more. So I guess the question would be, what's your advice for those clinicians who are kind of working without a lot of these tools? Get them. <laughs> but at a tour. And if you but need the money, really talk to Shauna. She'll just, she'll just sponsor all your trainings. Uh, I can help point you in the right direction. For sponsorship? Um, I think, no, not for, I don't know, I don't know about the sponsorships. I can point you in the right direction for training. Um, I think, there's it's a couple of things. One, like I think one of the beautiful pieces and one of the, I think the challenging pieces is twofold, right? At the core of what happens with all these trainings is these trainings are making something that it like technicalizes a lot of different things to make it, um, to scale it up, if you will, right? Like how do you treat, treat train somebody to make sure you have uh, assets and skills that can be measurable? That's any of these trainings. That's CBT, that's DBT. Like if you look at any of these assessments, they're assessing very like characteristics but then these aren't just something that come from nowhere right like this isn't just like i think the other challenge that we have is you have a bunch of people who also are like oh i use these tools like these skills in my day in day out my favorite is like when people tell me they're like i'm doing self-care i'm like what does that mean well i watch tv and i chill and i yeah. do whatever i was like that's not self-care that's just avoidance like <laughs> tell me when you're actually taking care of yourself self-care is actually building yourself up being able to sit with yourself process what's going on and then do positive constructive things for yourself that's self-care watching tv is box. just a mind numb yeah right <laughs> you're just like brain numbing and like that's inherently like what's going on and so like there's a lot of like I would say in like the one hand, being able to use a lot of these like language that people use nowadays is helpful because it like destigmatizes a lot of like conversations that have happened in the mental health world. On the other hand, it devalues some of it too, because if you don't know the words you're using or how to do it, then you're also missing out on something. And so I think it's like, you know, if I were going to tell a clinician or a newbie clinician what to do, I would start with like, learn how to listen to your gut because like there is some of that natural like understanding and intuition that comes with this training uh make sure you get the clinical skills behind it have a good supervisor make sure that supervisor pushes you to grow like that really does make a difference so much and easier than make sure you done but my current, oh, my current I mean, supervisor if you're in an agency like yeah, yeah. But my, <laughs> well this is again, where, like we're in public and i really do mean this my current supervisor is great i think like that's amazing. I think like having like developing your clinical toolkit by having uh, by making sure you add on like good trainings, but also being mindful that like just because everyone talks about that training, that doesn't mean that's the only training in yeah. existence. And so being willing to go off the beaten path to find something like you said, Moshe, you didn't even know what ART was, accelerated resolution therapy. And I've mentioned it a bunch of times, even to the point where I like literally have mentioned it around pain management. And you're like, hmm, I didn't know that. Like, I can tell you like on the record, my mom had like sprained her ankle. I had just finished my ART training and I helped her remove 90% of the pain because she didn't want to let go of the last like 10%. I was like, okay, mom, that's a you problem. I am happy to help you remove it. And she's like, but I need to know that it's like hurting. I was like, it doesn't take away that you sprain your ankle it just means your brain is not like constantly flaring to say that you have something going i'm very on, sorry what i just right? heard from you is you 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 practice magic and i'm highly skeptical of that so yeah. i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna do some 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 research on art before i believe that story thank you very much oh that's amazing yeah so yourself like, the entire for the entire episode you're 90 my mom's <laughs> bollocks this is what modality people sound like they're like this modality is magic it'll fix everything Right, but I don't think it'll Stop fix everything. Kidding. I've had people who've asked, like, I also have people who've asked me if they if I'll do art with them, and I tell them, no, they're not the right candidate for it. I know that people who have, like, created whatever training is, like, this can trade everything. I think there's 
the nuancing and that comes to the clinician, but that comes with also like making sure you expand your skill set. So my recommendation to newbie clinicians would be get the trainings, like get the trainings that everyone talks about, then get the trainings that people don't talk about as much and then have a good supervisor and have good peer, like peer support. And that will help you get where you need to go and also learn how to trust your gut and learn how to actually listen to the client, meet the client where they're at. That makes such a big difference when you're doing your training. Like I, in my own experience and I get other agencies do other things, I'm a big believer, you tailor the training to the client, not the client to the training, but also making sure you still adhere to the fidelity of the training that gets nuanced, that gets complicated. It's under, it's important to understand, are you using DBT skills or are you doing DBT? Using DBT skills is not the same thing as I'm running through you through a DBT training. And I'll explicitly tell a client if we're doing the actual like manualized approach versus there are skills I'm weaving into the therapeutic approach. So when you have more skills, you can weave them in, but not most people, the, the skill that you're talking about is when they just take someone through the manualized training approach, which can work for some and doesn't work for others that would be my long-winded answer we she's only a couple years older than us not fair I, I mean i don't know about you but i'm doing all sorts of trainings all the time <laughs> <laughs> not fair for me um anyway um i think this is a good place to end uh sean next time i see you i'm gonna ask you thousand questions about what we just talked about uh for those who couldn't figure it out we yeah, do that was in, great we do live in the same community uh i don't think we should summarize because i don't think i'd be able to so uh for all our happy listeners out there i hope you're happy and i hope you continue to be happy uh how do we find you um, do you want to sure so <laughs> Um, I will send you guys our Instagram if you guys want to follow on our Instagram. You can also reach out to What's us. The and find the at the agency is called Healing Harmony Health and Wellness with Shauna. Healing Harmony um, Wealth. No, no, no. Healing Harmony, Harmony Health and Wellness, and wellness mm -hmm. with Shauna. Well, I think the ad is Healing Harmony Health and Wellness. Um, and then, but if you want to be able to find us or contact me specifically, you can reach out to us at Shauna, S-H-A-N-A, counseling.com is how you get to uh, the website to find me specifically or to find the agency if you're curious a little bit more about us. Uh, my phone number is on that website for anyone who wants to contact me. I'm easy, contactable. You can email me. Um, my email's on that website, so it's really Shauna, S-H-A-N-A, counseling.com, uh, and that's the way to find me. Or ask Motion Liat. <laughs> I won't and respond to you. you can do that on Instagram at we're new at this. So we're new at this. Um, Any apostrophes? My Instagram. No, it no is not allowed on Instagram, no, see, I don't think. I'm not on um, Instagram. <laughs> uh, you can also find me on Twitter at it's Liat, I-T-S-L-I-A-T. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on. Anna, and thank you to anyone who is listening. <laughs> Still, after three clumsy episodes. All right, peace out.